The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, hey, my, my name is Paul Stevens, and, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. We're really glad that you jo- joined us this morning for worship. I want to welcome those folks who are tuning in online. I know we have a, a, a large collection of folks out in the overflow this morning, and we're grateful to be together. We're grateful for the opportunity to, to sit under God's Word. Uh, we're in a series in Hebrews uh, this, uh, this last five or six months. We're, about, we're in chapter 9, about uh, two-thirds of the way through the book. And I would encourage you, before you turn to Hebrews, however, this morning, I want us to begin by turning to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2. So if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to read the first five verses of this book. It pertains to our text today in Hebrews chapter 9. But I wanted to start with looking at this very well-known passage, meditating on a few things before I, 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 I turn the Bible, our, our Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 9. I also want to read the first, uh, the first six verses here of, of Ephesians 2. You were dead in our trespasses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, no doubt if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you have probably have read that verse or you're familiar with this verse. It's this, this incredible picture of, of the, 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 the vivid way in which our God rescues and, and resurrects us from death to life. Before Christ, the, the first couple of verses here of Ephesians chapter 2 say that you and me, we were dead in our, our disobedience and our many sins. We were dead. Not, not mostly dead, like, like, we, like the princess bride, but we were fully dead in our trespasses, in our sins. We lived in sin like the rest of the world. We, whether we knew it or not, before Christ, we were obeying the devil. He is the one who's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Before Christ, every one of us in this room, all of us, we we used to live that way. We followed the passionate desires, the the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to the wrath of God, deserving of the wrath of God like everybody else. This was where you and I were, and this is what we faced before Christ. But God, but God being so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you and I have been saved. He raised us up from dead along with Christ, and we've been seated with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus Christ. The rescue of Christ was not a resuscitation. We weren't mostly dead. You and I have been not resuscitated, but we have been resurrected. This is the work of the gospel in our lives. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is every 
Christian's testimony. Every Christian's testimony. And what I've discovered is an interesting thing. The closer we are to conversion, the more we understand that. And sometimes the further we get away from our our conversion, we, we forget that we were dead and rescued by a gracious God. Every Christian has a but God moment. I was dead in my sins, but God. I was caught up in the ways of the world, but God. I was following my fleshly passions, but God. I I was on the path to destruction, but God. I was blinded by foolishness, but God. I was rebellious and running to the opposite direction of of anything, but, but God. I was up to my eyeballs in dead works, but God. It's the Christian testimony. All hope seems lost. It's like the greatest movies. All hope seems lost. Beyond rescue, there's no hope. But then God shows up and brings life from death. Amen? This is our hope. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter, or to Hebrews chapter 9. We have another but God moment in our text this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 11 through 14. We started this series back in, in uh, November. We remind ourselves often that this, this, this letter, the, the, the book of Hebrews, was written to, to Jewish Christians who had, who had gone through very difficult seasons. They were facing difficulty, persecution. They were tempted to give up. The, 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 the letter of Hebrews was written for Christians on the verge of giving up, saying, don't. Like, it's a letter of perseverance. Keep going. And this is, in light of this large letter, we come to our text this morning, beginning in verse 11, chapter 9. But when Christ appeared, this is the but God moment. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is another one of those but God moments. If you're here last week, Pastor Jeremy walked us through in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, the Old Covenant worship, the, the, old, the old Testament worship that was surrounded by the tabernacle. He walked us through the furniture and all that was entailed in, in this, this Old Covenant system of worship, which ultimately was dead works. It didn't lead to life. In fact, we read last week in, in chapter, or in verse 9, that, that the gifts and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were offered, but they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. This is the before God moment. Before Christ intervened, there was not a perfected conscience. But when Christ appeared, we read in verse 12 that he purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We see the work of Christ at work in the lives of those who trust him. This is the but God moment, but when Christ appeared, and this is my whole sermon this morning, just quite simply, when Christ appeared, everything changed. This is the but God moment we're going to focus on this morning. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I pray that as we gather here today and sit under these, these few verses in the book of Hebrews, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds, open our eyes and ears to, to see and hear, uh, to understand and respond in faith to the truths that you reveal to us today. God, Holy Spirit, be at work in our midst. Bring conviction where there needs to be conviction and clarity where there needs to be clarity, Conve- confession where there needs to be confession. Lord, bring worship out of us this morning as we, as we meditate on this incredible truth that Christ, you have appeared And nothing will ever be the same because you have appeared. 
So God, help us to understand these things as we unpack them. Help them apply, help us apply these to our lives and live in light of the truths that we study this morning. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, so if you've been walking with us through Hebrews, it often feels very repetitive because the author has these ever-deepening and ever-increasing arguments that he's always adding little bits and pieces onto with each new pass by some of the same ideas that we've revisited again and again, but there's a depth and there's a growing argument that he is building. Uh, all of chapter 9 and the first 18 verses of chapter 10 are just really trying to help uh, the original audience, them, but also us today. He's trying to help us understand that, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was better than the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 10 here at the beginning of chapter 9. And our attention was drawn to the tabernacle, the, the, this tent of meeting that was the centerpiece of Old Covenant worship in the Old Testament. And, and we, we talked about the various uh, compartments within the tent of meeting, the holy place, the most holy place. We talked about the various pieces of furniture in both of these locations. We, we talked about the duty of the priests and the annual duty of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And as we looked at that, as we unpacked those passages, it became clear that, that access to God was deeply limited. In fact, if you go back and you read the first 10 verses of chapter 9, it's, it's rife with this limitation language. Just God was not fully accessible to the people. The Old Covenant and the Tabernacle did not provide full access to God for the people of God. And in so doing, as we see the inadequacy of this Old Covenant sacrifice, our hearts are beginning to long for something more. If you read this, you just sense that there is this hunger and this thirst for something more. And then we highlighted the limits of the Old Covenant because what it essentially amounted to was religious externalism. And so what the author has been doing in the first 10 verses, he's been setting us up for, for what he's going to share with us today. He's been preparing us as readers. He's been preparing us as readers to understand how it is that the appearance of Christ changed everything. If you go back to verses 9 and 10, we read that according to this arrangement, this old covenant arrangement that centered around the tabernacle, Gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so the old covenant served a purpose, but it pointed to this time of reformation. The reformation was inaugurated when Christ appeared. The old covenant and the religious rituals, they served a purpose. They pointed us, they pointed the reader to a better sacrifice that truly brings cleansing and truly brings the people of God into the presence of God. It draws our attention to when everything changed here in verse 11 and 12. If you look at verse 12, but Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through greater and more perfect intent, not, not made of human hands, that is not of this creation. In verse 12 we read, what, what, what did Christ do when he appeared? Well, it says in verse 12 that he entered once and for all into the holy places. Not by means of, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus he, he, he secured an eternal redemption. I want you to pay attention to those two phrases that involve the action or the activity of Jesus. He entered once and for all. Circle that, that, that verb there. Circle the word entered. That's important. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Look at that word securing. Pay attention to that word. Circle it or underline it. He, he entered once and for all, securing an eternal redemption. I got two points in my sermon today. I'm entitling my sermon, The Appearance and Superior Sacrifice of Christ. And here's the first thing. It's, it's long, but I want you to write this down. 
as we look to the appearance and the superior sacrifice of Christ, we see that he entered a superior sanctuary, securing our eternal redemption. I'm trying to capture the activity of Christ in this point. We see that he entered a superior sanctuary, a heavenly tabernacle, securing our eternal redemption. Let me read you those verses in another translation. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which is not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. He entered this heavenly tabernacle with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place for all time and secured our redemption forever. So Christ has has appeared and he's entered the perfect tent, the holy place. What is this holy place? What is this heavenly tabernacle, as another translation calls it? It's not made with human hands. What is this place that Christ entered? Now, now as we've been studying through Hebrews, uh, again and again we see language that speaks to the fact that the old covenant served as a shadow or a copy or a type that points us to Jesus over and over again. And so the, the most holy place of the tabernacle that we looked at last week was, was, a, was a picture or was a copy of the heavenly reality. We've been reminded again and again that there is a greater, truer, better thing to come that all these Old Testament customs and practices point to. And as Jeremy helped us see last week, that that earthly tabernacle, which was this portable uh, sanctuary constructed by Moses, it was a picture of this heavenly tabernacle that Jesus entered. It was a mobile tent that was at the center of worship for Israel, and it served as a copy of its heavenly reality. Now, obviously, if Jesus entered a heavenly tabernacle, sanctuary or a heavenly holy place or a heavenly tabernacle it was far superior than this earthly copy made with linen and the skins of animals Jesus entered a heavenly holy place that's not part of creation it wasn't made with human hands it's not an earthly sanctuary it's a heavenly sanctuary but as we speak of this non-created holy perfect heavenly tabernacle don't you just don't you just wonder and imagine what is that place I mean, we can read the words, but we're left as human beings to just to wonder and imagine, what does a heavenly tabernacle look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What is it like to be in a heavenly tabernacle? Is, there, is it beyond our human comprehension? And I think, yes, it is. It's beyond the, the ability of our six senses to discern. It's beyond our earthly experiences. It's the very presence of God. And, and again, we're left to wonder, what is, the, what is the perfect presence of God like? No doubt we've had experiences on our spiritual lives where we have, where we have been in the presence of God and worship and we've sensed his nearness and, and, and we know in the scriptures there were two or more gathered, he's there among us. So we know that there's a sense in which he is with us at all times, but what does the perfect heavenly tabernacle feel like? What is it like there? When I lived in Wisconsin, there was this trail system called the Ice Age Trail. It's like a thousand mile plus trail that winds through the hills of Wisconsin, through the hardwoods, and it kind of follows the, the edge of where the Ice Age glaciers would have stopped. It's a beautiful trail, and one of the places I would go hike was about 50 miles north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it was these rolling hills covered in hardwoods, and, and I would park my car on this back roads, and I would hike on this trail because there was this place that was off in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the woods in Wisconsin called Holy Hill. 
It was this basilica built on top of a mountain. You can see at the top of a hill, surrounded by hardwoods. It was the most beautiful place you can imagine. And I would love to throw a backpack on with some food and my Bible and a journal and take a day to go just meander on the Ice Age Trail, find myself up to Holy Hill, where the sanctuary was always open. And I would walk into this beautiful sanctuary and there would be just the quiet music, the whisperings of worshipers, and architecture that was just vertically oriented. Big, beautiful cathedral ceilings. And there was something about the way it was designed that felt, it it directed my attention and my heart heavenward. It was was an architecture that was designed to, to pull out worship within me. And so as I think about sanctuaries or even a heavenly tabernacle, I, I envision Holy Hill. I envision that place. Maybe you have a place in your mind when you think of the most sanctuary-esque place you've ever been. You just probably imagine what that's like, basilicas in Europe, or maybe for you it's the mountains. I don't know. Places where you feel like God is present and your ability to connect with him and see him is, is most available. But when I think about the idea of a sanctuary where, where our senses are drawn to God, there's... And where there's the desire of intimate encounter with him, um, I recognize that even the most sacred of places on earth are limited. Our, our senses are limited. We're not going to fully be in the presence of God. I mean, I mean, there's nothing like basketball hoops and scoreboards to bring us into the presence of God, but <laughs> our sanctuary aside, kidding. And so, but just, so, so all that, considering all of that, what is the perfect heavenly sanctuary like? What is that place like where Jesus entered on our behalf as a high priest? Well, it's, it's the fullness of God's presence. That's what it is. I read this week that the heavenly tabernacle becomes a vehicle for describing the indescribable, for depicting the very presence of God. And strictly speaking, there's not brick and mortar in heaven. There's not a sanctuary in heaven. But the presence of God exists in heaven. It is the sacred space that surrounds the very presence of God. And so Christ appeared as our greater high priest. He entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven. He, he entered the, the dwelling place of God himself. Okay. He did so as our high priest. What did he bring with him when he entered? Did you see it in the text, what he brought? When he entered this heavenly sanctuary, what did Jesus bring with him? Well, he brought his own blood. Look at verse 12. He, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places by means, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We recall that in the Old Covenant, as we've been studying for many, many weeks now, the earthly tabernacle was entered into with the blood of goats and calves. And once a year, the high priest on the day of atonement would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of animals. Jeremy walked us through that process last week. Now the blood of the animals that the high priest would bring in the old covenant, they represented the lives of those who offered them poured out in death. And the blood of animals would make man right uh, before God for a time, but only for a time. The sacrifices were never enough because the blood of goats and bulls, they appeased for a season, but not forever. And so the fact that sin never stops and man never stops sinning, therefore the atonement and the need for blood never stopped. And so there was this ongoing 
And Hebrews picks up on this throughout, this ongoing year after year shedding of blood that was necessary for the forgiveness of the sins. And and so the high priest was always on duty, always standing, mediating between God and man at the tabernacle, carrying out these blood sacrifices that were necessary for for the forgiveness of sins. And it was was ongoing. There was no finishing of it. It was never going to end. But when Christ appeared, everything changed. Jesus entered the the more perfect tabernacle, the heavenly holy place, and he entered with a more perfect blood. Not the blood of goats and calves. He entered with his very own heavenly blood, his divine blood. He surrendered his own life. He offered his own blood for the sake of his people. God in the flesh brought his own divine blood to the altar. The sacrifice, this this blood that was offered in the heavenly place, it was a once and for all sacrifice. Did you catch that language? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. That phrase, once for all, it means just that. It's a good translation. It's a final definitive entering. It's an action that never needs to be done again. And so Christ, the, the perfect high priest, the greater high priest, entered a truer sanctuary and he offered a better blood once and for all. Which means, and this is good news, that, that there will never again be a lesser high priest who will have to enter an earthly sanctuary with the blood of animals ever again. It also means that the life, death, and shed blood of Jesus up on the cross, it was and is fully sufficient once and for all. Never again will Jesus have to go to the cross. It was a once and for all sacrifice. Everything changed when Jesus appeared. Christ's sacrifice, his shed blood, it was fully sufficient for the forgiveness of sins for all of eternity. Hallelujah. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This one-time sacrifice of the Son of God was fully sufficient, fully effective, fully definitive, Securing forever the forgiveness of sins for the people of God and thus securing our eternal redemption. Most simply, this eternal redemption is the paid release from the oppression of sin. Christ has paid the price so that you and I no longer have to live under the oppression of sin. Because of the conquering and victorious work of Christ, because he's overcome sin and death and Satan, And by virtue of his shed blood and his resurrection, because he is now raised and seated at the right hand of majesty on high, because of that, we too have victory over sin and death and Satan. We too will be raised up in the heavenly place for all of eternity, not because of our own virtue, but by virtue of Christ and what he has done for us. This is our eternal redemption. This is what Christ has secured for you and for me once and for all. This is the gospel. This is our hope. Amen. All these other pictures of redemption that we see in the Old Testament simply point to that. And one of the things I think is so incredible about the scriptures are the way in which it tells this cohesive story. So we go back to the Old Testament. We see Passover. We see the deliverance of Israel from the hands of Egypt. We see Jubilee in the law, these little mini pictures of redemption, these, these redemptions with this lowercase r, they all point us to a greater redemption, a truer redemption that Christ himself has accomplished on, ours, on our behalf. This is the true deliverance. This is the true jubilee. Christ's appearance changed everything. 
And as we look to the appearance and the superior sacrifice of Christ, we see that he entered a superior sanctuary, a heavenly tabernacle, and by virtue of his life, shed blood, death, and resurrection, he has secured for us an eternal redemption. All right, two more verses, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's alluding to the Old Covenant. If, if the Old Covenant had this process where there could be like a, a momentary, temporary cleansing from defilement, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I want you to notice the action of Christ again. We've seen that he appeared We've seen that he entered, we see that he has secured, now we see that he's offered himself, pay attention to that phrase, circle the verb, circle offered if, you, if you're a marking up type. He has purified our conscience, circle the, the verb there, purify. This is the action of Christ, this is what he's done for us. And so as we look to the appearance and superior sacrifice of Christ, we see that he offers a superior sanctification, purifying our conscience. We're looking still to the work of Christ. He, we see that he offers a superior sanctification, purifying our conscience. In other words, if under the old system, uh, goat and bull blood and, and heifer ashes could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity, how much more then will the blood of Christ, God in the flesh, divine Christ, how much more will that purify our conscience from sinful deeds? It's not an external cleansing with washings and ceremonies. This is an internal cleansing that Christ offers. And as we've learned again and again over the last several weeks, the blood of, of goats and bulls was sprinkled as a way to, to bring purity to the unclean, to remove defilement. This was a part of the law. Also, we read in our text that there was the ashes of a heifer, this red heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. And if you read in Numbers 19 in the Old Testament, this ceremony where ashes removed the impurity uh, as a way of sin offering, it dealt with um, the defilement that would come when, see, when people would be in contact with a dead body. So the, the Old Testament law had a provision. If you were touched a dead body, you were declared ceremonially unclean, which means you couldn't worship at the temple, you couldn't approach God, you were separated. And so there was a provision in the law involving the ashes of a heifer that would remove the external impurity so you could worship again. That's the picture. But the author, he concludes here that God purifies our conscience from dead works. Do, do you see the play on words and the imagery here that the author is using? Under the Old Covenant, the concern was external impurity and therefore external purity from contact with a dead body. Under the New Covenant, the concern is internal purity from dead works. Not concerned with what's on the outside that happens when we contact a dead body. The concern is what happens on the inside when we, when we occupy ourselves with dead works. And we're learning that Christ, the greater high priest, offers a cleansing that is so much greater than just the sprinkling of the blood or the sprinkling of, of heifer ashes mixed with water that brings an external cleansing. This is an internal work that God does through his son Jesus of bringing internal purity. And it's an eternal purity. Schreiner, one of my favorite theologians, he says the blood of Christ is, is far better than the sacrifice of bulls, goats, and heifers. After all, it is the blood of a human being, and not just any human being, it is the blood of the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the entire world. And so as we think about that, okay, conscience. Our conscience is purified. That's an interesting thought. 
part of being made in God's image is to have moral capacity. We have the Imago Dei, we have the image of God on us. So unlike the animal kingdom, we have a moral capacity as human beings. That's our conscience, which means we have a sense of right and wrong. I love watching my grandson, he's almost three now, and I love watching him grow and I love watching my daughter parent him because you, you see his little conscience at work and his little two-month or two-year and ten-month-old brain. My daughter will say, Wilson, don't do that. And you'll just see his conscience at war within him. And I think it's adorable. And so I, you know, sometimes uh, I might fan the flame because it's cute. Abby does not appreciate that. And she rebukes me. But anyone who's raised a child, you know what it's like to see the battle of the conscience. We all, as we sit here today, we have a battle of the conscience, don't we? And this is one of the interesting things about this text is we read that in and through Christ, through his purifying work as our high priest, that we have a pure conscience. And so that is true. Eschatologically or theologically, that is true. And yet you and I also know, but I have a guilty conscience as I sit in church today. I did some things this week. I got some thoughts going on. I got a, I got a history in my life where I'm trying to rectify how it is that I have been purified in my conscience by Christ, but I live in the reality of a, of a, of a, a compromised conscience in the present. Interesting to think about that. When Christ, when he went into that heavenly holy place with his own blood, when he went to the cross on our behalf, his conscience was perfect. He was God in the flesh. He could not sin. The son's will was only to do that of the father. He, he never struggled with his conscience. He is the perfect sacrifice in our place. And so we struggle with our own sense of a compromised conscience because we're thinking it's about us. We have a high priest who is our advocate. He is our propitiation. He goes in our place. It's not, his, it's not our conscience that we're dependent on. It's his conscience that we're dependent on here. Through him, our conscience is made perfect. Now, that doesn't happen in real time. It's, a, it's an eternal reality. It, it's, a, it's a hopeful pointing forward to the day when those tears are wiped from our eyes and he sets all things new. And we get freed from these bodies of decay. That's the hope of the believer where the sacrificial animals of the old covenant had to, to be without physical defect, they had to be without blemish. Jesus Christ, who was pure of conscience, he was the perfect sacrifice of the new covenant. He was morally unblemished. He was without sin, and he offered himself without blemish to God, the text says. We also read in, in, in the first part of verse 14 something I think is interesting that I think we need to pay attention to. We read that this uh, eternal spirit, it was through the eternal spirit that Christ offered himself. What is this eternal spirit? Well, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's designation as eternal, it emphasizes the deity of the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of our triune Godhead. When we think of the atoning work of Christ, we envision his perfect obedience. We, we see him offering himself up on the cross. We see him as being empowered in our passage by the Holy Spirit in that work that he did. We see Christ as strengthened by the Holy Spirit to give himself up as our substitutionary sacrifice. The Spirit gave Christ strength to pick himself up off the ground of Gethsemane to receive the cup of suffering and step toward the cross. Through the eternal spirit, Christ then offered himself. And the spirit here is called eternal. It reminds me at least of the, the eternal plan of God. This was not a plan B for God. The crushing of his son was always the plan of the father. 
Christ dying in our place on the cross was always the plan. Of, it was the eternal plan of God. And when Christ appeared, everything changed because he fulfilled perfectly the will of the Father. And he went to the cross on our behalf. We see this word eternal throughout chapter 9 and even in chapter 5. One could say that the offering through the eternal spirit secures an eternal redemption that we read of in verse 12, an eternal salvation that we read of in chapter 5, and an eternal inheritance that we'll study next week. In fact, if you look more closely at verse 14, we, we see the fullness of God at work in his eternal redemption. Notice the language of the Trinity in this final verse. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? How much more will the work of our triune God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We see the work of Christ. We see the work of the Holy Spirit. We see the work of the Father in bringing about mine and your eternal redemption. All of who God was and is is involved in this redeeming work. And what a sorry state of affairs we would be in if Christ had not appeared. Oh, this is our hope. When Christ appeared, everything changed. Our rescuer has appeared. He has brought resurrection and resurrection hope. He has come to bring life and to purify the conscience. You know, as a staff, we have been very busy at Heritage. Uh, doing lots of different work, different projects. We have a marriage uh, getaway coming up and we've had... Uh, just different projects and initiatives and ideas and connecting with people and envisioning the future, working very hard. And it's been a busy several months, a busy year. And Pastor Aaron uh, pulled me aside about maybe a month ago, and he's like, I really feel like we need to create some space for rest for the staff a little bit. We need to create some, some downtime. And so we thought, well, let's get through Easter, and let's create a, a, a few weeks of time where we as a staff can, can catch our breath a little bit, and we can, we can reacquaint our hearts with the, with the gospel, and we can, we can focus ourselves on, on being people of God before we put our hand to doing the work of God. And this has been something we're trying to do, and we've actually invited a handful of area pastors from other churches to come into our staff meetings on Tuesday and just speak encouragement over us to help us rest, to, 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 to expand our, our connection with the body of Christ. It's a, it's a sweet season. And a part of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks is we've been looking at spiritual disciplines or like the practices of the Christian life, the rhythms of the Christian life. And we've been talking about what it looks like for us to really incorporate those into our daily walk with Jesus, about what it looks like for us to have a sustainable pace of life, to, to sleep and to eat well, to exercise, to to engage in meaningful life-giving relationships within the body of Christ. We've talked about daily time in prayer and reflection about, about time in the Word of God. We've talked about the need for weekly Sabbath. It's been encouraging, convicting. But you know, this week as I sat there with staff and as we, we talked about this, I, I considered all of this and I, and I realized, you know, if our hope for rest ultimately rests in a better managed calendar, if our hope for rest is, is anchored to us being better disciplined, if our hope for, for rest for our souls is not rooted in the work of Christ, will there really be rest? No. Rest is not found in externalism. Just like purity is not found in externalism. So Sabbath is the seven-day rhythm that we observe as Christians, a day of Sabbath rest. We dedicate this day to the Lord for worship and for rest, but it's not just a day off. It's not just a day of reorientation. 
Our Sabbath is the day that we recognize our rest is rooted in the completed work of Christ. In our text, in that Ephesians 2 passage I read at the beginning of our service, it speaks to the work of Christ that enables our rest. Jesus Christ, our high priest, he's the one who did the work. What's the work he did? He appeared. He entered. He secured. He offered. He he purifies. And then it's only in light of what Christ has done that you and I are then finally, at the end of our text, called to do something. What is it that we're called to do in our passage today? In light of Christ who appeared as our high priest, in light of Christ who entered the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood, in light of Christ who secured our eternal redemption, in light of Christ who offers himself as a superior sacrifice, in light of Christ who purifies our conscience, we then, in response to this saving and sanctifying work, we are called to serve the living God. It is through his work that our conscience is purified and with a pure conscience we are invited by the author to serve the living God. This is a picture of worship, not as duty, but as a free will offering, as an act of of worship to a God who has done this incredible saving and sanctifying work in our lives. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is what we're doing here this morning. He does all the work necessary to purify our conscience from dead works. It's about him. So that we are then freed up to serve the living God. Christ purifies our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living living God. Again, to borrow from Thomas Schreiner, he, he said in his commentary, those who are thus cleansed are liberated to serve the living God and they are not saddled with guilt but purified from it. And thus they can live in confidence and joy before God and serve him gladly. Christ's appearance changed everything. As we look to the appearance in the superior sacrifice of Christ, we see that he entered a superior sanctuary, securing our eternal redemption. We see that he offers a superior sanctification, purifying our conscience, so that with a purified conscience, you and me, we are privileged with the invitation to serve the living God. The one thing the text tells us to do is to serve the living God. I'm reminded of what we read in chapter 12 of of Hebrews. We'll get to this in several weeks, but near the end of the book, the author says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. A reverent and awe-filled worship to a God who's done all the work. This is worship. This is what precedes serving the living God. It's it's the purifying of the conscience. We, we with a pure conscience because of Christ, can, can approach him boldly. We can approach the throne of grace, as it says previously in our book. And I think, and I think, and maybe you can identify with this. There's just something in our human psyche where we so often get this backwards. It's very easy to get the order of our worship backwards. We, we serve the living God in hopes of him purifying our conscience. And if that's how we're approaching the throne of grace, thinking I have to pay my, my, my penance, I have, to, I, have to, I have to do my duty, I have to walk the journey of purification so that I can then maybe hopefully approach him. But that, that's an emphasis of worship that is on us. And that's why I think, by the way, legalism is so attractive. 
Because if, if I'm a legalist and I can say, here's the 47 things I need to do to be pure, I can still make it about me. And then I can approach the throne of grace, not based on the merits of what Christ has done, but based on the merits of my own ability to follow the law, which is not worship. It is our conscience that so often gets in the way of our worship. I'm remind, mindful of what Paul writes in, in Romans 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We, we are a part of this law of, of, of the spirit of life. And here's what I've seen, if I can just be honest. There are some who are just, God has given you the ability to be a disciplined person. You're type A and you're able to do A, B, and C every day. You get up at the same time and it's so easy to, 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 to rest in your own ability to do it. And if you're really honest and if you really assess the condition of your spiritual life right now, you're like, you know what? I'm not sure how Christ-centered my, my worship really is. I think it's more about my disciplines and about what I bring to the table. My hope is that God would convict you of that this morning. And that you would recognize you don't have a clean conscience just because you're able to be disciplined. It's only in and through Christ that your conscience is purified. And that your worship would be directed at him, would be rooted in the work he did, not the work you do. That your work would not be a means to an end, but a, an, a free will offering of worship to the God who has saved you. I don't live in that camp. <laughs> I'm not a naturally uh, disciplined, I'm disciplined in some ways, not in that way. I can tell you that my tendency is to be more like Adam and Eve in the garden. When they blew it and they went and hid from God because they were too afraid of their shame to stand in his presence. That's more my DNA. And I think about the years of pastoring and I think about those who have fallen away from the faith because they do not believe their conscience is purified. And they've got great sin, like we all have great sin, but sometimes there's those sensational sins that bring great shame that we are unable to bring to the cross for whatever reason. I think of the man who struggles with addiction year after year after year, finally gets a DUI as his face in the news and he just cannot walk back in church and face those people. He feels way too ashamed and it begins the process of backsliding, of slowly stepping away. Ten years later, Jesus is not even on the landscape of his life because his shame has caused him, his guilty conscience has caused him to condemn himself and live in shame and never come back to God. That is not true. Our consciences are purified. It's not about you. It's about our high priest who brought his own blood into the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. I think of the woman who in a moment of weakness stepped out on her marriage and committed an infidelity that became public and the great shame she feels. Even though her husband has fought the path of reconciliation, cannot show her face in church, cannot see her other friends, feels like God will never forgive her of that indiscretion, lives the rest of her life in shame. Ten years later, Jesus is nowhere on the landscape of her life because she cannot believe that her conscience is pure. She's not trusting in the atoning work of Christ and the sufficiency of his blood. I'm telling you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The focus is not to be on you, it's to be on him. That is the whole point of worship. No need to run and hide. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But the righteousness of Christ is being applied. His sacrifice right now is, is Christ is on our behalf interceding on our behalf at the right hand of majesty on high. As he's mediating a better covenant right now, he is applying the sacrifice right now. And his blood is sufficient 
to atone for the sins that you walk around feeling so ashamed of. Not that we have free license to, to, to live in open sin, but we've got forgiveness and we're invited to live a different way in light of the grace that we have been shown and the, and the purifying work of Christ upon our conscience. I'm mindful of Romans 5. I just want to read to you just a, a few verses in Romans chapter 5. Let me just read to you these verse 6 through 11. Just don't, if you want to follow along, feel free. If you want to just close your eyes and let these words wash over your life, whether you're the legalist who is trusting in your own work or you're the person struggling with a guilty conscience and you can't get free from that shame, wherever you may find yourself today, let me just read these words over you. It's another but God moment. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God, showing his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, it, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know what that life looks like? This serves the living God, it looks like verse 10 or verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You have received a reconciliation, a purifying work. And as one who's been purified by the blood of Christ, we, we, we now we offer this beautiful picture, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a picture of worship. That's a picture of serving the living God. The conscience on this side of glory, it lies to us sometimes. Apply the blood of Jesus. The truth is you've been created by God in love. You are fully known by him. There's nothing you do that he doesn't see. Those of you that have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been born again, you've been adopted, you've been elected, forgiven, you're holy, you have a new identity. You've been justified, you are perfectly loved, you've been rescued and redeemed, you've been saved, you have been sealed, you've been transformed, you've been treasured. You're united with Christ, you share in his victory, you're washed by his blood, you've been exonerated, you've been given the easy yoke. You see, Christ's appearance changed everything. Hallelujah. He entered the superior sanctuary, securing our eternal redemption. He offers a superior sanctification, purifying our conscience, so that with a purified conscience, we serve the living God. I have this memory that I want to share, and then I'll close. So 10 years ago, there was a woman, a friend of mine, who lived in Manila, the Philippines, and her sister had been fighting cystic fibrosis for like 30 years, 40 years, her whole life. Her sister was in her 40s. And had been touch and go for the last six, seven years of her sister's life. She's in renal failure. Her lungs weren't working. And she was on death's door. Finally, Andrea gets a call from her family back in Wisconsin that Deirdre, her sister's uh, got hours, maybe days at best. So she rushes to the airport of Manila, hops a plane to Japan and then to the States to come say goodbye to her sister. Unbeknownst to Andrea, while she was on the flight from Manila to, uh, I think Okinawa actually, um, my niece died. 
uh, suddenly and tragically. But her lungs became available through organ transplant. And while Andrea was in the plane thinking this was a story of death, she landed in Okinawa and received another phone call from her family, but there was an intervention. There was a when-all-hope-seems-lost sort of moment. And my niece's little tender 17-year-old lungs came up. And so her trip went from being a trip of mourning to a trip of celebrating. And she was able to fly to Madison, Wisconsin, and she was able to sit with her sister who had new lungs, a new lease on life. Through the sacrifice of my niece, Deirdre received life. And she's still alive to this day, 10 years later, living a beautiful, great life. It was a but-God moment in her life, in a physical sense. But this is all of our story. This is all of our story. We all are dead in our trespasses and sin, but when Christ appeared, everything changed. And he appeared, and his blood is sufficient to wash clean your conscience, that you are declared righteous in the presence of God today, your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west through Christ. You don't need to pull back from him. You need to shout with joy and run to him and live in the fullness of that life and serve the living God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this text and uh, for the way it just draws worship out of us. I'm mindful of the blood of Jesus, which changed everything. I'm mindful of the old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow? No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. God, I pray that this would be our anthem. God, that you would give us a proper understanding of who you are and what you have done. That we could run to the throne of grace boldly confess, repent of our sin, and meet you in joyful worship to serve the living God. Have your way with us, Lord. Open our eyes to the truth of this gospel. Allow us to live in light of this gospel day in and day out for your glory. We love you and we are yours. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.